Psalm 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord Yahweh abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Verse 7, But I, being David, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there, there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have, they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you for you bless the righteous O lord you cover him with favor as with a shield amen so the the first seven verses as we've walked through them uh david in writing this psalm is writing penning a prayer as he's communicating with the Lord and he cries out that the Lord would hear him that the Lord would give attention to him and that he desires to make his voice heard in the morning and to worship him and then he goes in in four five and six to speak about God to God basically to speak about God's disposition towards the wicked uh, it's not it's not easy verses to swallow it's not fun truth to to proclaim but it is truth and any truth about god is good truth it's glorious it's glorifying to god um and so we, ha- we, we can't shy away from the hard pills to swallow when it comes to statements like, God, um, you hate all evildoers, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We don't want to think about God in that way, um, but it is absolutely necessary that we know God that way. Because that is how he is. That is who he is. Um, to take away that characteristic of God, that disposition to God, would actually cheapen his love. Because if you love something, you're bound to hate that which is against that which you love. If you love righteousness, or you love the righteous you will have the opposite 
reaction or disposition towards those who hate what you love. And so it's, it's very difficult for us to separate this aspect of God because, well, if you, if you cut it off, then you've, you've turned him into something that he's not. You're creating a different God. Uh, and then seven, we spent last week looking at what we see uh, in the ESV is translated steadfast love. In the, in the KJV, it's translated mercy. Um, in other translations, it's um, given as f- faithful love. Uh, but I, through the abundance, I being David, in contrast to the wicked, the evildoer, the deceitful. But I, not, he says he will enter into the presence of the Lord, into his holy temple, not because, he doesn't say because I'm not wicked or because I'm not boastful or I'm not an evildoer or I don't speak lies or I, I'm not bloodthirsty, I'm not a deceitful man. He says he's going to enter in the temple into the presence of God to, to worship and to fear him in accordance with or by or through the abundance of God's love, of God's mercy. And that's what we spent our time looking at last week, the, the steadfast love of God that brings us into his presence, that allows us who are evil to have access to the throne of God. And ultimately we know and we found out that that is going to be founded on his son. Well, God's son, but also what we would call David's son, Jesus. So we, we move on and we look, we're going to look at eight through 12 today. Um, I want to spend just a couple a little bit extra time on the first two words. I think it's maybe the first two words of most translations, or it might have uh, O Lord first, but the two words that jumped out to me in verse 8 is lead me. And so he continues his prayer and makes this request, lead me. Now, we're going to look at we're going to look at that statement in context, that request in context, because it does mean something specific for David. But just the idea of turning to the Lord and and requesting that he lead you is such a, it's such a humbling statement. It's such a, it's such a cry of dependence. And I think it's one we, we have to, dwell on for a minute because and all if you you know David's history and of course we've read Psalm 1 2 3 and 4 and we know he's got enemies and we know that this isn't just a spiritual lead me God but it's also a physical because his life is at stake David's is but I wanted to just think about it from a spiritual aspect before we moved on so and I wanted to ask the question, why is this a wise request by David? Why is this a wise request by David? Just to simply cry out to God and and ask him to lead him. Th- three things. 
popped out to me. Number one, and just simply from reading Psalm 1, 2, 3, and 4, and basically all the other Psalms, is we understand that as we live our lives, there is a right way and a wrong way. Okay? As we live life, you're either going to make the wrong turn or the right turn. There's the wise way and the foolish way. The blessed way and the cursed way. And for you to simply say, Lord, lead me, is to say, I need help to get to that right way. I need help to make the wise decision. I need help to find myself on the blessed path. Now, you, the wrong you, way and the Yahweh, right? Huh? The wrong way and the Yahweh. Right, yeah. It begins in Psalm 1. He says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There's two ways. Psalm 2, in its, in its entirety, says there is the way who humbles themselves before uh the Lord and His anointed, those who humble, who, those who don't humble themselves and seek to set up their own authority, their own autonomy. But then there is, on the other hand, those who must uh, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So two, two ways put before them. And I'm not saying that there are only two options in life. Like there's only two options in every circumstance or situation. Or, uh, uh, or decision, but each option, path, or choice can be marked as the, the, how, uh, the, uh, verse 6 in, in Psalm 1 writes, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Every choice, decision, or path we take can be marked as the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. And so... You could have multiple things going on, but you sh- you want the Lord to help lead you and find out which way is the wrong way and which way is the right way. Which way is the way of the wicked and which way is the way of righteousness. Um, so that, that, that is first and foremost. There are two options, <laughs> the right and the wrong way. And the second thing that rolls out of that is Apart from the intervention of God, our drift is typically towards the wrong way. That's the way we lean. Our car is out of alignment. Our moral, our moral uh, compass is yeah. It's 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 it doesn't point true north, right? Um, and as I wrote that sentence down, apart from the intervention of God. You know, people could take that that word intervention or to God to intervene and probably and possibly feel violated by that idea uh, that God would intervene in in someone's life, um, and almost in a sense like, well, that's that that seems like to to make me a robot. And I was thinking, well, no, I prefer the term slave. Right? I would much I, I want to be a slave 
to the right way. I want to be a slave to righteousness. I want to be a slave to God. Because what's Romans 6 say? You're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Uh, before, before Christ, before following Him, Romans 6 says that we are um, slave to sin and free from righteousness. I don't want to be there. I don't want to be unchained from righteousness. I want to be on the other side of that, chained to righteousness and freed from sin. And I am convinced that the only way that that happens is through the intervention of God Himself in correcting my compass, straightening my alignment, right? The promised Holy Spirit. The, the, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Um, let me read you what the psalmist writes in Psalm 119. And if you, uh, it, uh, I'm not gonna, it's not much, but it's Psalm 119:33. This is what the psalmist says, and we don't know if it's David or not, but he says, here. I'm just going to give you highlights of what he says. He, he, he asks the Lord to teach me, to, to teach me, to give me understanding, to lead me in the path of your commandments, to incline my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain, to turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, to confirm your promise. See, that, that's somebody needing God to intervene, to help to intervene in his lack of understanding, in his knowledge, in his direction, in the inclination of his heart, in the focus of his eyes. He needs God to intervene and to correct that, to, to straighten his alignment. The hymn, the hymn writer in... Uh, uh, I didn't write the name of the hymn down... Um, Come thou found, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. I feel it. I feel it. Um, and then he says, bind my wondering heart to thee. That's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. Lead, lead me, the psalmist says. Lead me, David says. Um and then out of that, the, the third thing with behind this idea of asking the Lord to lead us is, is you know, it's simple. We ask the Lord to lead us because He's He's right. He's righteous. He, he's the one who knows. He's the one who gives the correct guidance. Um, I, I want you to hear this out of Hosea. Don't don't worry about turning there. Um, write this down, Hosea 14:9, and read Hosea this week, because we're going to reference Jesus refers to Hosea in Matthew at the end or in this section in Matthew 9, where we'll be next week. So read Hosea this week. Um, you, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, it's a, it's basically God condemning Israel through the prophet Hosea. Um, How does it is God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute, um, and 
she's unfaithful. And God's using the, that illustration, that, that story to express Israel's unfaithfulness to God. But then the end of it is, is glorious. The end of it is hesed, his steadfast love. Um, but the, I think this, what I was going to refer to, is actually the last verse of Hosea. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. They're right. And the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. It's it's just such good truth that we receive from Hosea chapter 14, verse 9. So I I commend that book to you. Uh, The reference we're going to make this next Sunday will be out of chapter 6. And that's sort of the midpoint in, in, in the... In the book. So we'll continue on and back to Psalm 5 8. And take for a second David's prayer in context because, like I said, David actually has physical enemies desiring to do him harm. And so he literally wants the Lord to lead him in the right way because of. His enemies. His enemies are out to get him. And it might even be, and he ends, he ends up saying, uh, make your way straight before me. Um, one wrong choice in David's decision making could be his last. I mean, even his son was out to kill him at some point. Right, he's got. He has these enemies around him. Uh, he and he, he says, "Lead me, O Lord. Make my, make your way straight before me. Make your way straight before me." So ultimately, again, we see that it's God's way that He's wanting to follow. Um, and I would take straight to infer uh, no turns, as in. The decisions are laid out before him. Even though he might be turning to the road, he's like, oh, I've got to turn left. But it, it's as if he's going straight, like there's no obstacle. And he's just following the path of the Lord um, to be guided. Even to take a crooked road, to follow the Lord through a crooked road is to be going down a straight road. Um, and then we get to verse 9 and 10. Which, again, are two verses that are not fun, not easy to proclaim, not easy to to consider. Uh, But what verse 9, verse 9 and 10 tell, it gives us an idea of who David is up against. Who David is up against. Now, we also have to, we also can understand, and I think we mentioned this in probably Psalm 3, David is viewing his enemies. As God's enemies. Right? Even Psalm 2 says, when we think about the immediate context of Psalm 2, um, the kings of the earth set themselves 
and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord Yahweh and against his anointed. Well, David is the anointed one at that time. He is the king of Israel, the, the, the Messiah or a Messiah of, of that day, an anointed one, a chosen one. Um, and so David writes Psalm 5 on all these psalms with the realization that if, if someone is against him, they are against God. Now that's a good thought for us to, to have. If someone makes themselves our enemy, are they making themselves our enemy because they don't like us? Or they don't like us because we're being led by the Lord. Does that make sense to me, to to y'all? So we don't, we, if someone declares themselves as our enemy and, you know, and how they act towards us in persecution, may it be because they can't, they, when they see us and our actions, they are actually seeing us being led by the Lord. Um, I didn't, I didn't really think think this through much, but I, I believe Peter makes reference to this. Of course, Peter failed at that when he denied the Lord, right? He failed at that. Um, he denied. The Lord, when when those when his enemies came up against him, um, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and the God and of God rest upon you. But let none of you, you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So if David's got all these enemies, if he's having an enemy because what's uh, Bathsheba's husband's name? Huh? Uriah. If Uriah's daddy's after David, then because he killed his son then David can't say, hey, God, my enemy right now is your enemy. Do you understand what I'm saying? He, he, do not let it, do not suffer as a murderer, an evildoer, or a meddler. Alright? Now don't take that too far. He, David is God's anointed, but you, you get the point. We must find ourselves, if we find ourselves with enemies, with those seeking to do something to us, think about that as we look down the corridors of time within this country. What does that look like with governmental issues, right? Something to think about. Okay, so David's enemies... Are, are exp- expressed in verse nine. Here, here's how he describes them: for there, there uh, for there is no truth in their mouth; their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. So that's just verse nine. It's quite a list. We get words like lie, destruction, death, deception. Now. 
Notice, and you men, you'll pick up on this because we saw this in the, th- the seven things that the Lord abhors, the seven abominations. Notice what is happening here. The, there, no truth comes from their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Where is all their wickedness coming from? It's coming from within. And it's coming out. He, he literally says that their throat is an open grave. And it, it, it reminded me of Jesus' conversation with the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, I, I think it's, I don't know if it's only in Matthew. But Jesus says, when the, when the Pharisees and the scribes get on to Jesus because his disciples aren't washing their hands uh, in, in the way that they, um, by man's tradition, ultimately what it is. But Jesus sets them in their place and uh, he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Not to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And, and, and Paul, Paul himself makes reference to this psalm in Romans 3 when describing the Jew and the Gentile, the Jew and the Greek, that all are under sin and he uses the the phrase, and their throat is an open grave. Um, we 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 see the condition of the heart, the um, the fallen heart of sinful man. Let's continue, verse ten. Then David does something might seem surprising, might not. He declares in verse 10, make them bear their guilt, O God. It's a pretty bold statement. Make them bear their guilt, O God. And who's he speaking? He's speaking about those who are deceitful, full of lies. Destruction. Now, sort of a, a mini, mini lit, litmus test for you. When you read ten, how do you what 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 gets stirred up inside of you? Let's look at it. Make them bear their guilt, O oh God. So, it, what would be a right response? To seeing David ask that of God. Now I've got. I just came up with four right responses when we see that truth. When we see David make that um, request, that God load them down with their guilt. Um, number one, you can read that and give glory to God. Why? Because God is just, and he will by no means clear the guilty. 
And so when God acts out of his character, out of his nature, who he is, he's acting in a way that gives himself glory. And that's what we want, for God to be glorified. Then on the other hand, when God gives mercy, he too is glorified. So when God gives justice or when he gives mercy, we can respond <clears throat> with marvel and glorifying God. Another, uh, another response to such a, a statement could be frustration with the guilty. Maybe you've, you know someone personally who literally is just hard to the Lord. And you know that they will bear their guilt before God. And you just get, you're just so frustrated because you've had those conversations. You've talked and you've said it. And you just, you just wish they would see. You just, you just get so frustrated. That's okay. That's a fine response. That's a good response. Another response to such a statement could be sadness. You could experience all three of these so far at one time for one person. And your heart break because you know what that will look like. You know the end result. And I think the last one that came to mind as we think about this is you're humbled. Because he calls them rebels at the end of 10, those who he asked to bear their guilt. He says, for they have rebelled against you. But if you know what Romans 5 says, what does it call those who are in Christ? What they used to be? Rebels to God. And so you can see that and get and, and, and weep. And humility and think that that's that could be me that should have been me but I've but I've received this abundance of steadfast love now there I, I came up with two wrong responses number one indifference if you hear of the guilty Standing before God and you're indifferent, then that might that might suggest that you have a misunderstanding of either. Well, you have a misunderstanding of what sin is, perhaps God's view of sin and his justice towards it. If you're indifferent to someone sinning against God and then God then bearing that guilt upon them. That's not a good place to be indifferent about that. But the other thing is to look that David would declare that God would make the guilty bear their guilt and then think, well, David, that's that's not really fair. But then we go back to that reality that well, the fair aspect, the fair reality of mankind is that we would all bear our own guilt. Right? Think about the flood. We can't look at the flood and say, those poor people, they didn't deserve that. We deserve that. 
in our sinfulness. Right? No one can say for God to make someone bear their guilt is unfair. It's absolutely fair. Absolutely. What we can be awestruck over is that he would not make someone bear their guilt. I mean, I didn't say that right. That he would withhold that. That he would not crush all of us with his guilt, with our guilt, our own guilt. The fact that he shows us mercy and grace is more of a surprise than him making the guilty bear their own guilt. So again, just a a way of humbling us as we think through this. uh, Go ahead and go on to verse 11. As he closes his prayer, he he does a, a complete 180, which he's done then. He's kind of done this 180 back and forth a few times. He goes from the guilty who will, uh, back in verse 10, he says the guilty, uh, let the, he says they will fall by their own counsels. So those he wants God to bear their own guilt, he, he says let them fall by their own counsels. Well, and then verse 11, in this 180 degree turn, he says, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. So you've got those who are guilty and they will fall based on their own counsels, their own dependent upon themselves. But he says those who will be rejoicing are those who will not be dependent upon themselves, but who will acknowledge their need of protection and weakness and find refuge. Or seek shelter. And they find it in the Lord. But let all who take refuge in you Rejoice. And again, why would we? What? Why would someone take refuge? Why would someone take shelter? Well, if last night, when we were standing there looking at that shelf cloud, and those winds popped over the house, and the limbs started flying over the house, we knew that in this moment we were weak. And if we did not take shelter, there's a very possibility we could come to our destruction. And we, I mean, we hightailed it in the house. Of course, like a good Arkansan, I came back outside. (laughs) (laughs) But the only reason to take refuge, to take shelter, is because of your weakness. And so you must depend upon that shelter for protection. And that's what David's saying. These evil, these wicked people, they fall as they lean upon themselves, as they take their own counsel. But true joy and rejoicing comes for those who acknowledge their weakness, their dependency upon God, and look to find protection underneath Him. And he says, and he, and it is it's part of his prayer. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And then he says, and spread your protection over them. 
that those who love your name may exult in you. Not not exalt, but exult. Uh, I think the, the King James translates it to be joyful. And this is ultimately what it is. It is to have an affectionate response to the Lord. To exult is to is to joyfully, affectionately respond and worship the Lord. And that's that's the disposition of those who find their refuge in God. Joy, protection, love, and joyful worship. In verse 12, he says, For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Covers them. He covers them. Let's look at Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So we go back to that psalm and think about all of David's enemies. I think we can also apply this to the reality of our sin as our enemy. And only in the protection and the covering of the blood of Christ can we find that refuge, that shelter, and where we ultimately find joy. Blessed in the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Only, that's only possible when you find yourself in Christ, covered by the blood of Christ. That's it. That's the only way. David's sin was covered by the blood of Christ. It's, a, it's a, an amazing thing to think of. That God's eternal plan of, plan of redemption, which culminated in the cross of Christ and the crucifixion of the Son of God, even covered the sins of David. If you don't believe me, it's in Romans 3. What a glorious God. What a, a glorious redemption. What a glorious protection we have in Christ. So, that's it. But I want to I want to let you remind you that those who take refuge in Him rejoice. And they will sing for joy. So, sing for joy for those who find their protection in Christ. That's it. Let's close Psalm 5. Any questions or thoughts?